Welcome spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. This is what we do. Hi everybody, uh, welcome to This Podcast is Haunted. My name is Kate. And my name is Jen. And joining us today we have Dr. Jeanette Laredo. Which is- Hello! Hello! Hi. Welcome! Well, thank you. Thank We're you for so having excited me. to have you. Long time listener, oh. first time guest. Oh my gosh. Isn't this fun? Like, I'm so excited to have you on here. This is so great. So, Dr. Jeanette Laredo and I, also, I'm going to use your full name and title the that, whole time. You know what? That's fine. That's wonderful. Thank you okay. so much. <laughs> As is proper. We have been Facebook friends for like three years as mm-hmm. you were getting your doctorate. Yes, yes, uh, And yes. it's just been like magical and supportive. And so I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So we are talking about gothic horror today. Mm-hmm. That's what your your background is in, actually. I've got your bio right here. Dr. Jeanette Laredo is an independent scholar of all things awful, including the 18th century British Gothic literature and Victorian horror. She got her doctorate in English from the University of North Texas. Her dissertation is titled Reading the Ruptured World. How great of a title is that? Amazing. Thank you. I I came up with it right at the end. That's amazing. I, I didn't know that you could like academically do this kind of shit and if I feel like if I had known <laughs> I would have stayed in school. Well guess what? You still have that opportunity. I no, might. who I'm knows, good. you know? I'm done. Actually grad school is always there waiting, lurking. Oh, I did one round of it. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> Jen just got free of grad school. She oh only recently returned Don't go back. To me. Don't go back. Yeah. Well. <laughs> it seems expensive. Uh and and you can then you get paid absolutely no money. So it's true. It's really um, true. <laughs> So I just want to, just for everybody's sake, I'm going to read your full title here. Reading the ruptured word, detecting trauma in Gothic fiction from 1764 to 1853 on structural abnormalities in Gothic fiction as signifiers of trauma that characters within these texts seek to prevent or repair via detection. My God. Don't you love that? It's great. If I do say so myself. I mean, you got a doctorate from it. And I like, know. It's really had, crazy. Those are hard to get. Yeah, they don't they just are. give this to anyone. Yeah, it's You're not. You're literally the 1%. Thank you. And you don't necessarily have to be smart to get a doctorate. You just have to be tenacious. And that's definitely me. Like, I just will not let go of something. Mm. Yeah. See, that's where I, I fall I think off. that's very encouraging. That's yeah, good. <laughs> definitely. That was, that made my heart a little happy. Like, yeah. it like, my shell. <laughs> yeah. Now, for those of you who are wanting to find out more about Dr. Jeanette Laredo right away, you can find Stop her. the podcast. Stop everything. <laughs> right, just take a pause. <laughs> uh, jump onto Twitter. You can follow her on Twitter, and we encourage you to do so. She is at Monster Scholar, which is the greatest handle I've ever heard. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Like, uh, now, you also you have a, a newsletter that goes out through Monster Scholar. Um, and you're also about to start a podcast with your partner, right? Yes. We've been trying to get it off the ground for the past year, but 2019 has been a dumpster fire. Uh, so yes. we're kind of, <laughs> we've already recorded an episode. <laughs> we've got it in the can. So we're looking to release sometime in 2020. But yeah, it's going to be called A Couple of Weirdos. So it's me and my partner. He he has more of the, the kind of ghosts and cryptid side. And then I have the more horror and true crime side. That's awesome. I'm super excited to listen to that. When he's ready to talk about the Michigan Dog Man, you should have me on. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm writing I that l- down right now. 
I super love the Michigan dog. <laughs> you really do. Cool. I really do. It's a little, it's a little inappropriate <laughs> for me to tell you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about ghosts, baby. Let's yes. Do the little da, da, da. Baby, oh let's God. talk about, about you and me. Awesome. <laughs> let's talk about all the horror and the bad things that could be. Wow. Right? Uh-huh. I just came up with that. That wow. was really good. It's true. Ladies and gentlemen. The teachings of Weird Al. Am I exactly? You, it's it's a parody. It's a parody. It's it's legal. Yeah. That's right. Under parody law. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I I will. I'm gonna let you take us take us on a journey. Tell us what awesome. we need to know. Yeah. So this is a a version of a talk I did at my local library. So uh, it was on the ghost story. So we started with what are ghosts. So. I'll put that question to you. What are ghosts? You're going to have a lot more detailed answers, (laughs) but this is about the ghost story in the American and kind of British tradition. So to you, what are ghosts? Like, what what does it mean to be Mm. a ghost? What are the criteria you look for in a ghost? Oh, man, that is actually hard to say. Because, you know, in the things that we talk about, we talk about demons. We talk about energies we talk about mm-hmm. sheets with holes in them right so i think <laughs> when i'm when i'm just focusing on literature uh if i'm talking about ghosts it's going to be the in a in a book the ghost would have to have some sort of agency mm-hmm. whereas like some of the ghosts we talk about here on the show are just like just rattling things yeah or an impression of a person walking through a room yeah. you know so I would think that a ghost would be the imprint of a soul who has agency, intellect, and form. Okay. Okay. I don't know. Is that? Did it I mean, good? I like. <laughs> I think there are certain tropes that people always bring up with ghosts. You know, there's someone with unfinished business on Earth. Oh yeah. Someone whose remains are. Uh, in not fully at rest or not interred correctly. Salt and burn those bones, um, baby. Yeah. yeah, and then there's, uh, you know, people who, ghosts who remain in their homes and get pissed off when you start changing things. Right, <laughs> right. That kind of thing. That's all pretty cool. And yeah, those are some of the responses I got from the participants at my talk. So when we usually think of a ghost, we think of someone who had unfinished business or like you were saying, mm-hmm. Kate, like something with agency, something with form. And the form usually takes the form of something kind of wispy and ethereal, kind of like a see-through spirit. And so foggy. To, yeah, foggy, quite not there. And so to kind of counter that, I showed them like on the, and this will be available with the episode, it'll be in the show notes. But on this slide here, I've got a bunch of different types of ghosts. Um, So they can be really different. It could be something like, you know, the girl from the ring, which is really terrifying, Mm. you know, with her long black hair and coming out of the television. Or it could be something like Patrick Swayze with some soft lighting behind him, you know, or it could be like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah. Or the ghost from Hamlet, which is clothed entirely in armor. So these are kind of the different types of ghosts that you get in literature. And then like through this, we're going to talk about like how we get to these many different incarnations of ghosts, um, because there is as many ghosts as there are stories about ghosts. So I've got a timeline here. So we've got, and it goes back to 1517. So the Protestant Reformation begins in 1517. And the reason this is important is because this influences how people believe in ghosts, basically. So going back to the Protestant Reformation, they're like, well, are ghosts real? 
Is this a thing? You know, are these spirits able to be trapped between heaven and hell? So this was like a big question during the Protestant Mm -hmm. Reformation. And that's why in 1609, when you get Shakespeare's Hamlet, you have that really important question where uh, Shakespeare's the de- the ghost of Shakespeare's dad is like you know listen to me and take revenge, but then Shakespeare's like wait a minute like are you a ghost or are you a demon you know like he has that question of like what is this thing so do you know I've never questioned that before like yeah. I've read that text a couple of times and I've always kind of grazed right past that mm-hmm. that moment of questioning that Hamlet has. I've also just, like, literally never questioned the concept of ghosts being, like, different yeah, history. Right. Like, what? And that's because <laughs> the English Reformation was, like, it completely got rid of this idea of purgatory um, and said that souls immediately either went to heaven or hell. There was no mm. um, kind of in-between. And so there's this clergyman, Robert Wisdom, who in 1543, I love this quote, he said, souls departed do not come again and play boo-peep with us. Uh, was his stance. And so that was kind of the stance of the English Reformation. And so that's why Hamlet is really conflicted. Um, he doesn't really mm. know if this is his father or if it's a demon um, who has come in the guise of his father. Um, and so, yeah, we'll keep going with that. So I want to kind of uh, go to the appearance of ghosts. So how we see ghosts, um, if you think about like, if a kid's going to do a costume of a ghost last minute on Halloween, you're what are you gonna do um you're gonna you're gonna throw a bed sheet on it you're gonna cut some holes on it and that's it pretty much yeah um Mm -hmm. and so this kind of comes in really early in the western tradition in uh roman times in ancient rome there was this writer named pliny the younger not to be uh mistaken with pliny the elder right and he (laughs) he talks about a story in Athens. There's a large empty house and it has a quote, bad reputation and unhealthy air where there's the ghost of an old man who's shackled in chains and he walks at night and the chains rattle um, as he does. And nobody wants to spend a night there. But then what happens is there's a philosopher who's intrigued by the tale and he decides I'm going to figure out what's going on. So he goes and stays at the house, rents it, and he waits for the ghost. Then he hears the clank of the chains um, as it grows louder and louder until suddenly the ghost appears. And then the philosopher follows the phantom to the courtyard where it vanishes. And then the next morning they dig up the spot where the ghost disappeared and they find the bones of a man shackled and chained. And once the bones are properly... Yes? That's that's in like Roman literature. Yeah, this like is ancient. A, a, yeah, this account? is yes, this is ancient Roman writings, and so yeah, they find that's so dope. Isn't that really cool? And so he, the kind of this this idea of the ghost leading us to their unfinished business, leading us to their burial spot, is kind of planted very early in the Western tradition. So they take the bones and they bury them properly, and then the ghost never comes back and is never seen again and so that's isn't that really cool yeah man that's exciting all right sorry i get too excited no that's really good and so in ancient rome we get that vision of the ghost bound in chains and then in around the 1800s you get a spirit drapery on ghosts Mm. which is Mm -hmm. kind of meant to resemble the winding sheet on a corpse Oh, 
yes, because what ended up happening is before this time in the 1800s, um, ghosts looked like the ghost of Hamlet's dad, where they were fully encased in armor. And that was meant to kind of evoke that they were from the past. But Mm -hmm. in order to move them around the stage, it was so complicated. Like they had to move them with these complicated systems of pulleys and lifts. And as a result, they became objects of ridicule. Mm, So there's uh, these two authors, Ann Jones and Peter Stallybrass in Renaissance Clothing and the Materials of Memory, talk about as laughter increasingly threatens the ghost, he starts to be staged not in armor, but in some form of spirit drapery. Because uh, it was just mm. easier for them to move around. And so they become less material. Proving once again, just absolute proof that if you have bad visual effects, nobody can take you exactly. seriously. Exactly! You, cats. Oh my god, I just saw that. Oh, <gasps> Did okay. you tell us everything? It was so... <laughs> It was so bad. And I just oh remember because uh, my partner Ed just turned to me and was like, why? Like, <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen it yet? I saw I it. I haven't. And I'm like very <sighs> excited to see it. I mean, it's also very scary. It is a spectacle. It, it is definitely a spectacle. Um, yeah. And there yeah. are moments where it's the, the joy comes through. I, I don't want to hate cats. <laughs> Because I want big budget musicals to be a thing. Yeah. But, but I, why this one? Though? I well, I just feel like Tom Hooper's having some sort of like mental Benjamin Button issue where like <laughs> at first he was like really well developed with the King's speech and oh. now like through Les Mis and he's regressing. Now cats, he's regressing, yeah. Interesting. Okay, I have a question about yes, please. the like ghosts in armor. Like so that that was like a staging device for yeah. for plays. Yeah. So would they do would they do that for like any kind of ghosts? Like I know, okay, like Hamlet's father, he's the king. Conceivably you could see him wearing armor, but like were there like other ghosts that would wear armor that shouldn't be? Or like was that just like the code for they, or would they wear something else that was old fashioned? They even if they didn't wear armor, they would be conspicuously clothed so it was kind of like in the renaissance at the beginning uh ghosts were very material you know like they weren't kind of before the spirit drapery came into play um i think with hamlet's father i think you're right because he may have played a part in wars as a king um but Mm -hmm. that's just to say that like at the beginning of the renaissance ghosts were very much like flesh and blood you know Mm, um and that's a great segue because there's this i love this uh quote from susan owens she wrote the ghost a cultural history and so she talks about ghosts and she says um that ghosts were not always the unsubstantiated or insubstantial presences that we think of today. A modern ghost will materialize and drift gently towards you and disperse into mist. But before that, especially in the medieval period, it was more likely to break the door down and beat you to death with the broken planks. Um, (laughs) Amazing. So yeah, ghosts were much more, used to be much more physical. And I think the fact that the, I think the Protestant Reformation had a lot to do with that immateriality mm. of ghosts because they're calling into question whether ghosts really exist. And so I think that's reflected in how they become more ethereal and more kind of, you know, clothed in huh. spirit drapery and woo as opposed to something yeah. very real. That also makes a lot of sense with what I've always maintained, which is that the Catholic Church is much better at uh, accepting the possibility of ghosts. 
mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. because they believe in purgatory. Well, yeah. I also think the Catholic Church benefits from... Mystery? <laughs> well, yes. Yes, that's true. They benefit from mystery. They benefit from, from kind of being able to control the tale. Exactly. But also, they have grown up in a way, uh, cannibalizing other cultures look at ghosts yeah. and, and the spirit world and sort of incorporating that into their own mythology. Yeah, and I think or their own religion. I don't want to dismiss anybody's. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, and we're, and we're just talking about like the Western tradition. So of course we're gonna have to talk about Catholicism. And I think the <laughs> the reason uh, when you have something like purgatory, um, you get more in terms of uh, believers paying for prayers in order to pray somebody's soul out of purgatory. So yes. there's like that, you know. Uh, sorry to say, but, you know, there's that kind of mercenary thing going on. But yeah, because wait, didn't recently the Pope say there was, Did he didn't say there was no purgatory, but he said unbaptized babies are no longer in purgatory. Did you guys oh, hear about just that? just like recently changed the rules. Yeah. yeah and he's like, oh. no, it's fine. Because I think people, that was also a thing people were freaked about out about for many, many years. Oh, yeah. So... So yeah, so I think it's kind of reflecting that, like the changes, the changes in religious beliefs are being reflected in how the ghost is appearing in stories and on stage. And so that's why in Hamlet, um, which is one of my favorite scenes, he says, be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned, bring with the airs from heaven or blast from hell, be thy intense wicked or charitable, thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee, I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane, oh, answer me. And so he's really ambivalent. You know, he he's going a mile a minute from, um, you know, are you a spirit of health or a goblin damned? Are you from heaven or bringing blasts from hell? And it's kind of, mm. I think that reflects the the tension and the, the the real ambivalence that people had about ghosts at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. So I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I'm so Nothing glad. I'm so glad that you <laughs> wait. So I have to ask, like, which version of Hamlet is your favorite? Is it the Kenneth Branagh version? I gotta say, it's the more recent Benedict Cumberbatch version. Really? <laughs> yes, yes. I really think I well, okay. So I'm a well-known Cumberbitch. Yes. Uh, so part of it is that. But I also think that he, that the staging of that is particularly excellent. I was going to say that too. I think there's something about the staging of that production that really gets to the anxiety of it. Yes, there's that a real Kenneth sense Kenneth Branagh doesn't necessarily. I completely agree. Not that I, I think Kenneth Branagh. I mean, Kenneth Branagh is a legend. I mean, no right. disrespect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although he, he is he's the dumbest lot. man alive to chew down Emma Thompson. He oh, just, that's true. Yeah. With, yeah. Definitely. Uh, but but yeah, no, I, I and and we will credit him with finding us Tom Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's... I mean we we stand a legend, but right. also Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch run of National Theater, uh, Frankenstein and yeah, Hamlet are he's just, just amazing on epic. stage. He he's truly excellent. I need to look and that, that up. Voice, yeah. Mm. You do. Oh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, there's just some, like the sound design, the I'm costumes. I'm for the, you to see that. The, per- <laughs> the sets are amazing. I will. Do you guys want to like wrap this up real quick? <laughs> and stream it together? It's like a uh, like, pause. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give everyone a chance to Let's watch it. Let's go watch a three hour film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's <laughs> out there. I think if you go to nationaltheater.com, you can buy a DVD of it. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not like on Netflix, unfortunately. That is so cool. Actually, I will look yeah, that up. Yeah, so if you get a chance. That's cool. 
And so this kind of leads me into Gothic literature. So, um, so Gothic literature really starts in the Western tradition in uh, 1764 with the publication of The Castle of Otranto. And so this is really interesting because it's written by Horace Walpole, and I've been to his uh-huh. house. Uh, <laughs> he had a castle in the middle of this kind of like small English hamlet. Um, he called it Strawberry Hill. It's gorgeous. I've been there. I've eaten there. It's fantastic. Um, that sounds but it's, adorable. Yeah, but it's in the middle of like an English suburb. It's really crazy. And so he was a fan of kind of all things kind of uh, stately and old. And so he wrote this story, The Castle of Otranto. He had a dream of a giant hand in armor at the top of a set of stairs. And he woke up and then immediately started writing this. And so the story is about uh, Manfred, who is the kind of, he's the, the male owner of the Castle of Otranto and his his legitimacy as you know, ruler of this castle is being threatened because he arranges this marriage of his son, uh, Conrad, to his daughter, Isabella, in order to, like, strengthen his, you know, claim on the property. But then out of nowhere, Conrad gets smushed to death by a giant helmet um, on the day of his nuptials. Yeah. And so, um, instead of, you know, mourning the death of his son as, as you would think someone normally would, uh, he decides that he's going to marry Isabella instead. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, not a problem. Well, it's problematic because he's kind of like a father figure, but he's also married, uh, to Uh a, a wonderfully named Hippolyta. And he's just like, you know, I don't, yeah, like I got to get rid of her and I got to, I, you know, Conrad couldn't do it. I'm going to have to step in as your husband. And then Isabella mm-hmm. flees from him. And this is a really cool story because it creates the, the many tropes of Gothic fiction. So like the, the damsel in distress, the, the, uh, interceding of the supernatural, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, decayed castle as a setting and like the catacombs underneath it those kinds of things. So of course it's going to have a ghost. So what happens is when Manfred propositions Isabella, she's of course like no way Jose and runs away. (laughs) And so he is distracted for a moment by this picture of one of his ancestors. And he sees that it quit its panel. So it descends to the floor with a grave and melancholy air. Do I dream, cried Manfred, returning, or are the devils themselves in league against me? Speak, infernal specter, or if thou art my grandsire, why dost thou too conspire against thy wretched descendant, who too dearly pays for... Ere he could finish the sentence, the vision sighed again and made a sign to Manfred to follow him. Lead on, cried Manfred, I will follow thee to the gulf of perdition." So that's kind of, yeah, it's really chilling, right? Um, (laughs) So what are some things you're seeing in this that kind of, how does that compare to Hamlet or how does that fit, do you think? Well, still, still addressing a member of the family. In this case, it sounds like it's a portrait of his grandfather. Yes. So he, he's not questioning it. He's kind of right on board. Mm -hmm, Am mm -hmm. I correct? Okay. Uh, I always feel like. I have the answer, but I'm never sure. I know. There, there is no wrong answer. <laughs> um, so, so what year was this again? This was in 1764. So uh, quite a bit of ways from Hamlet, which is 1609. Mm. 
And so he's um, so so just right away like well no there is some questioning it uh, it's a long quote forgive me yeah I always do better when I'm reading text no you're okay a lot of my students do <laughs> do I dream that's the question yes yeah. am I yeah. awake am I is this really happening and which is something we hear in a lot of ghost stories today mm-hmm. you know I I woke up. I'm not sure if I was really awake, but I had this experience um, where you where you can't quite trust what your eyes and ears might be telling you. Yeah. You can't quite trust your brain's interpretation. I think that's really spot on because that was something that was really um, that was a struggle during the Enlightenment. Like, what is real? Like, is it right. what we can mm. see? You know, I think therefore I am type thing. Like, is it right. what I can see? Can I touch? And there was this kind of crisis of the senses because, you know, people were reporting paranormal experiences and experiences with supernatural things. But it's like, can we really trust, you know, our senses to tell us that something is real or is this some kind of, you know, infernal hallucination? Yes. Mm. So that's and, cool. and again, it's something we struggle with today. I mean, like that UFO I saw, uh, I mentioned on the show before, I was like, oh yeah, I think I saw that, but did I really? Right. Did you? You know, it's Did a question really? we still, <laughs> right? It's, it's a question it's we so, have to wonder about. It's so interesting because I think we put a lot of stock into like first person, you know, witness, uh, you know, testimony. But at the same time, it's like our memories can't be, you know, uh, altered and changed because like as we remember things, it's not that, you know, you're going back into your brain and finding the memory on a shelf. It's like, as you remember it, you are reconstructing that memory. So there's the potential for changing it. And people have been able to do that, you know, through brainwashing techniques and, you know, terrible, terrible interrogation techniques, they've been able to change people's. That's why with, um, to kind of go off on a tangent, but with, uh, you know, confessions, (laughs) people think like, I could never give a false confession that I could never do that. Why would you ever confess to something you never did it's because you know you're in that environment for a long period of time you're deprived of food you're deprived of you know water and you just want to they're hammering at you and you just want to give them what you want and you don't have a memory that you didn't do it and pretty soon you start Mm -hmm. to think well maybe just because I don't have a memory of not doing it doesn't mean I couldn't have done it you know right right Look at look at Brandon Dassey, Brendan Dassey from the yes. uh, Making a Murderer case. Poor sweet boy. Well, and his his appeal just got shut down again. Yep. <gasps> Sorry, I'm still following oh. it because it's a Wisconsin story. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, the the governor said that there's no chance for um, commutation. They're not going to commute the sentence, be, uh, even though, well, a lot of people don't don't believe that he didn't murder. And help his uncle Stephen Avery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's still a lot of people who are not convinced, who don't know how our memories can be rewritten, and yeah, and what sort of things can happen to a person who just wants to help the authorities. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know we're struggling with it today. But they were definitely struggling with this idea, you know, in the 1700s, where you know uh, things you would think things would get clearer with technology and stuff like DNA. But it's like not really. Um, so I think they were they were still struggling with it back then. This idea of like, can you trust what you see? Um, is this a ghost? Is this demonic? What is this? So yeah. Right. 
And who can I go to to help me clarify this? Exactly. the 1700s were a huge time of upheaval around the world. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And so it's like, if my church is telling me that these... Okay, so purgatory doesn't exist and my church is telling me that these are you know but you know old old beliefs are hard to shake and so that kind of leads me to i'm gonna jump i'm gonna do a jump in time and also geographically to across the pond to the legend of sleepy hollow um so i'm sure you guys are did you guys read this in school yeah yeah i think so yeah, so like, so you know, it's set, you know, um, in a Dutch settlement called Terrytown, um, which has the secluded glen of Sleepy Hollow. And so Ichabod Crane, I think, do we all remember the cartoon? That was my favorite. Oh, my go to is the Tim Burton one. Oh, yeah, you're totally <laughs> right about Oh, yes, Johnny I Depp. I just before. constantly think of Christopher Lee's deep voice. Sleepy yeah, as Hollow. the, oh, my gosh. Yeah, Johnny Depp before all the accusations came out. Um, right. <laughs> In a simpler time. Definitely. <laughs> a better and more pure time. Exactly. A better times. Yeah, I do actually love that because I think it, it brings out a little bit of the you know, um, how you can't trust your emotions and he's a very scientific man. And then, you know, falling in love Mm. with Christina Ricci, which who wouldn't. Right. Right. Um, Well, and also your, your whole theory of, of the horror and, and detection. Yes. And trying to find resolution through detection. I I would imagine that that story would chime in big with you. Yeah. Cause I think for him it's, and I, I love that they kept the supernatural in it because I think to do otherwise, um, would have mm-hmm. kind of neutered the story, but he's a, he's a scientific man. He's trying to figure out what's going on here. And what he does find is that there is something natural happening. Like there is a killer um, who's controlling a supernatural agent, uh, which oh, yeah. I think is really interesting because it means that science and the supernatural and the unexplained can kind of coexist. Yeah, it was like a beautiful marriage between true crime and the paranormal. Exactly, it was very cool. <laughs> Everyone's too... True and that's and I think that kind of uh, it keeps the the heart and soul of the original story. So like if you remember uh, Ichabod, you know, is um, competing for the affections of um, Katrina Van Tassel against Brom Bones. Um, yes. And then he disappears on his ride home, having encountered what he thinks is the ghost of a headless mercenary. There's that whole thing. I don't know if you guys remember at the end of the story where the the story kind of suggests or implies that the horseman could have been Brahm in disguise and that Ichabod, you know, ran away in fear. But the the old Dutch wives continue to kind of advance this story that he was spirited away supernaturally. Um, right. And so I think that's really interesting because it's like, what purpose does the ghost story serve and why do they keep kind of advancing that story? And I think it's far more interesting than you know, oh, he just got spooked off and left and was never heard from again. Right. Mm. So, so yeah, which brings me, okay, we're going to do another reversal and come back to Britain. Um, one of the most famous, famous ghost stories is A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Very timely, too. Which would appropriately put us into the greatest version of its own self, A Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, it's yeah. the best. It's the absolute, the absolute best. best. Did either of you uh, watch the like new like gritty spooky version? That's on my mother and Hulu? sister watched it together. I haven't yeah. seen it, and 
It's on FX, but they're running it on Hulu. Yeah. It's a okay. three-episode miniseries. I don't... I haven't watched it yet. I'm probably not going to watch it this year. Yeah, it's um, a little past time. Past the date. I, I, I saw the first hour of it, and it was just so weird to go... Because it's, it's... Like, they went hard on, like, the spookiness of it. Sure. Which I love. But I'm, I I haven't seen all of it, so I don't know how this turn happens. But, like, I'm all, I keep wondering, like, how they're going to make this turn of, like... Oh my God! Everything's terrible and really spooky too. Like, oh, the resolution is the true meaning of Christmas. Right. Exactly. <laughs> how are you gonna get there, FX? Well, how do you What's get your there plan? From it? <laughs> like Hill House. If at the end of well, I guess that's not a good example because so, the end of Hill House is. Kind I of think that's <laughs> interesting that that's the part you're hitting on because that's really what Dickens was going for in his original Christmas okay. Carol. He was trying to, you know, his his story. Um, it inspired a lot of aspects of Christmas that we have today, which are family gatherings and dancing and that generosity of spirit, which I love. Mm -hmm. I saw this meme the other day where it's like the Christmas carol is about how rich people need to be scared into sharing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what it's really about. But yeah, it's he in in many ways you could say that Dickens really created Christmas in the way that we celebrate it today. And that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's never been out of print. That's the really interesting thing. And it's been huh. you know adapted so many times and has been translated into so many languages. The Christmas Carol, you know, you've got that um, Scrooge character. Um, So he's visited by the ghost of his dead business partner, Jacob Marley. And so he, the ghost, is burdened by heavy chains and money boxes forged during a lifetime of greed and selfishness. So what does that remind you of? Uh, Pliny the Younger. There you go. So it's interesting because the Rome, you are so smart. (laughs) Make those connections. (laughs) I love it. A cookie for I you. I want a cookie, yes. Thank oh you. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> hilarious. But, yeah, so it's it's interesting. So that gets planted in the Western tradition. And then uh, Dickens kind of comes along, and he's the one who adds the kind of the moral dimension to it. Because it's not mm-hmm. just that he's burdened by chains. It's that he he's wearing these money boxes that represent his greed uh, during his life, that he was just very selfish, and he didn't care about anybody else but money. Um, and so, right. yeah, that's really important during the Victorian era because there's that, especially with Dickens as a social problem novelist, you know, he's all about, you know, exposing the plight of the, yeah. the, 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 the rancid underbelly of that is the opposite side of Victorian prosperity. Um, I gotta right. say, I really hope that version of hell exists now. Oh man, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Exactly. We're definitely going through that again. The purgatory. It's like purgatory's back. He's back in. I just want um, Jeff Bezos to have to pay penance by coming back with all the hidden chains to exactly. tell his fellow billionaires to be nice. Bernie Sanders is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Yeah, Jeff that's... Bezos. <laughs> if they did it for um, real, yeah. Oh, man, I, I, I so think that would. I would enjoy the shit out of that. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like, if you read the, or I've got the quote here, but it's like, Marley, um, it says, the chain he drew was clasped around his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge observing him and looking through his waistcoat could see the two buttons on his coat behind. It's interesting that you've got the chains, but they're not as corporeal because at this point, you know, the ghost has been made immaterial. He's still trying 
transparent, but the kind of meaning of those chains is kind of uh, holding him down spiritually um, and how you'll be weighed down by your sins in the afterlife is super interesting um, because I think it was super important for the Victorians to kind of have a morally upstanding like you know kind of caring for the poor and caring um, for those in your community even though you know authors like Oscar Wilde are like well this is all hypocrisy right exactly it wasn't all you know unicorns and lemon drops (laughs) but yeah so that really kind of I think when you think of a ghost or when I ask a lot of people what they think about a ghost they often think of the sheet and the chains are a big deal Mm. Um, with that and so I think in in that way in in that way Dickens has kind of solidified what we think of when we think about a ghost Hmm. I love that it's really cool now I also yeah um, is this the first time that we're seeing ghosts in literature becoming transparent because as we've been talking about this sort of the transparency is how we westerners read a ghost as a ghost Um, like if you were for example I know that uh, I'm, I'm making this up, uh, but I know that there are other cultures, say, for example, uh, maybe uh, Chinese culture where ghosts do not look transparent. Mm-hmm. But if if like Disney were translating that uh, a la Mulan, they would make uh-huh. those ghosts appear uh, translucent for yeah. the benefit of... So the Westerners would understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Which you're right. They did um, in the Mulan movie. Uh, There's a let's see. I'm going to look it up right now. There's a a Japanese horror movie. Yeah, it's by Kurosawa. Yeah, it's called Pulse or Cairo, I think. K-A-I-R-O. And it has ghosts in it. And they are completely different. Uh, to Western ghosts, they're very, um, there's no kind of distinguishing them from actual people. Um, and that's kind of part of the horror because you could be talking to someone and this whole time they're a ghost. Yeah, um, that's like a whole new level of creepy. Exactly. Well, at, we use it for twists now. We're so, oh, we're yeah. so fixated on all ghosts must be translucent. That everybody was shocked when Bruce Willis was dead the whole movie. Spoiler. Oh my god! Exactly, I see dead people. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've been you've been bamboozled. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. But uh, this isn't the only show that does that. I'm here's a spoiler because this just came out. But uh, the end of Castle Rock season two, oh. we think that she has brought the daughter back from the drowning, and the daughter mm-hmm. is definitely a ghost. So or American Horror Story does them. the same thing. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Tate was dead the whole time. Exactly. And I think it has to do with those cultural differences because I think in the, the Japanese horror movies, that kind of, it reflects the Buddhist and Shinto background where I think that they're much more comfortable with spirits than we are because there's that link between spirits called kami and the natural world. And so I think it reflects that. Whereas for us, ghosts are 
you know, they're other, they're, they're supposed to be objects of fear. Um, and I think yes. in, in the Japanese tradition, it's much more, it, it's, it's less, it, it's less that, uh, than it is in the Western tradition. And you can kind of see that with ghost stories that get translated from J- Japanese to American Western audiences like the grudge, which we have another one. I don't know why we got another yeah. one. I don't know either. There's another grudge. There's another All grudge coming out. There's Pass. a lot of ads with hair in them, and it's very disturbing. But it's, but it's a guy in the shower. That's I was down with yeah. that. Oh, I do love men in showers. They're great. <laughs> Wait, it's great. Is something bad gonna happen to him? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. It's that point. hand out of the like in the grudge. Do you remember? She's like, it's Buffy. Know. She's oh, washing no. her hair in the hand. Yeah. So instead, yeah. it's a guy this time. So I don't know. I've repressed a lot of the grudge very successfully. Good. Well, uh, when sorry, I get too I scared, I just fall asleep. So uh, <laughs> you know what? That's actually actually that is a really good uh, response to trauma, and that's what happens with a lot of gothic heroines. Is people would complain like, "Oh, she's passing out every two seconds," um, but that is a very appropriate uh, reaction to trauma because you just kind of check go. out mentally and physically. Yep, my brain goes, nope, and I go to sleep. That is awesome. Classic gothic heroine. That's right, just fainting away. (sighs) I know when people look at me, they think this one's a fainter. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Anyway, yeah, yeah. uh, no, I'm so glad that we brought that up, that, that we have this, this idea, these, these different versions. I think the translucency, tra- transparency yeah yeah. whatever fuck me i don't care (laughs) (laughs) the transparency is really the big read that a ghost is a ghost to us yeah so okay that's something interesting to think about yeah and i think that connects with the you know the judeo-christian type or, or the the western tradition it connects to the you know the protestant reformation and everything but yeah to move on a little bit we're gonna stay in britain we're gonna stay kind of in the victorian era but I want to talk a little bit about spiritualism. And I think you guys are probably yes. familiar with this as well, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. you know. We, Didn't we, you guys do an episode on the Fox, Fox sisters? sisters? Yes, we did. totally. Yeah. yeah. That was back a long, long time ago. In the, in the one, way back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I love the Fox sisters because they really capitalized on this craze in Victorian <laughs> England, especially. Yeah, good where, for them. Yeah. I mean... Just get that money. They are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who run the world? The Fox sisters, because they got that yeah, money. That's right. But yeah. I love it because it's like they kind of capitalized on this, you know, movement where it, the, there's like spirits exist and you can contact them, you can ring them up. And so. And it's just so interesting, like spiritualism as a movement, because there were a lot of people who were really, quote unquote, rational because they believed in, you know, the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. And so looking back on it, it's hard to believe that these people would uh, believe in things in something as irrational, quote unquote, as ghosts. It seems kind of weird. But I think that's kind of encapsulated by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a really big proponent of spiritualism during his life. Because Which is I, very funny. It's very interesting, yeah. And it really did yeah. harm his reputation because he, you know, he believed in spiritualism. And then also he believed in the Katingli fairies, 
Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, like, these three, I, I, was it three or two? These young girls um, had pictures of what was believed to be fairies, and he totally was, yeah. like, 100%, I'm in. I believe this. Um, <laughs> these and are I think definitely fairies. These are definitely fairies, and it turns out they were, like, cutouts from a, from a book. They're, like, paper dolls. Yeah, right. they were, like, paper dolls. fluttering in the wind. Yeah. But, yeah, so... I just... Love pointing out to people who get really salty about Photoshop nowadays. I'm like, listen, people have been faking photos for as long as photography has ever existed. So you're like practical effects. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I really love that. So spiritualism kind of comes in and you've got the idea of the spirit knocking. And so that's, so the whole thing of the Fox sisters is they thought, or they told people that they had been in contact with the spirit of a murdered peddler and he would knock or rap. And that would be the indication that they were, he they were communicating with his spirit, but it actually was, you know, one of the sisters, was she popping her toe joints? Yes. Yeah, right? she's doing a number of things. Which I, also is the grossest thing I've ever heard. But I'm sorry, my first thought, and I know I, I've obviously heard this story before, but my first thought whenever I hear rapping is like, yo, my name is John and I'm here to say <laughs> my bones are hidden in the wall. <laughs> I'm a ghost and I'm here today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, the, the spiritualism and the whole idea of kind of seances and ghost knocking, if you go to something like The Raven, which is... Uh, Edgar mm. Allan Poe's poem in 1845, he talks about, you know, he's doing his thing once upon a midnight jury, and he's like nearly napping. Suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. And so I think that's kind of reflecting what's been put there by spiritualism. Yes. Because it's like this supernatural thing that's kind of intruding in on his um, on his piece. Well, yeah. and that is also a, it's not just something that we're visually seeing. It's like making a, a, like a visual, physical effect on the world as we understand it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? But we don't see the spirit. And so I think that's, that's a really, I think that's a really interesting thing because that's the, that the spirits can affect the natural world. They just can't be conspicuously present. Right. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to traditions like, oh, God, what's his name? He was going to open up the Dibbick box. He's like, hey, demons, it's your boy. Zach Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bagel Bites, that guy. Bagel Bites. (laughs) I can never remember his name. I don't know where the Bagel Bites thing came from. I think that came from, uh, and that's why they drink. They call him Zach Bagel Bites. Oh, oh, that could be. Yep, okay. there you go. That's probably exactly where that came That's from. That's really funny. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the having this like physical effect on the world. Hey, ghosts, I can hear you. Can you respond in this way? Definitely harkens back to spiritualism and the Fox sisters. And then kind of moving forward to uh, Henry James's Turn of the Screw. So that's like 1898. Really? I think you're, you're, uh, you might, you're, you're part of the select few who like it because I think some people, some people kind of hate the ambiguity of the novel. Yeah. So my introduction to this novel is actually an audible reading audible sent it out as like a free thing Mm. and i'm not i don't love henry james as a writer typically i had to read a couple of his things in college but the governess and like the kid it it was just 
it was perfect. And it's just about the right length for me too, to like focus on something. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would recommend other people listening to the audible version of that story. And I think the reason you like it is because it's not easy. Yeah. Because there is that tension between, so it's about a governess who's taking care of these children and she's kind of in at, at a remote estate and she becomes convinced that the grounds are haunted, but it's never kind of explicit either way if she's kind of cuckoo bananas or if mm. it's really a ghost. And I think it resists a kind of easy explanation. So James, he was not really fond of stereotypical ghosts, you know, the chain dragging, you know, (laughs) uh, transparent ghosts that we've come to know. And he, quote, he really liked the strange and sinister embroidered on the very type of the normal and easy. And I think that there is this desire. It's it's kind of like magic almost, like to solve the ghost story. Like it was, you know, Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the penknife or whatever. Um, and to figure out like, especially today with our culture of twists, you know, like M. Night yes. Shyamalan. <laughs> you were talking about that. Yeah, like I see dead people. Um, yeah. There's this need to kind of solve ghost stories, but I think what's cool about Henry James's Turn of the Screw is that it, it resists that. So I've got a quote here by um, Brad Leithhauser uh, from The New Yorker. He talks about, All such attempts to solve the book, however, admiringly tendered, unwittingly work towards its diminution. Its profoundest pleasure lies in the beautifully fussed over way in which James refuses to come down on either side. The book becomes a modest monument to the bold pursuit of ambiguity. And isn't that great? Also, if you love stories where, not not aesthetic, what's the... Ghost stories where ambiance, what's the mood? Atmosphere? It starts or with tone? atmosphere. An atmospheric horror story. God, yeah. I love those. That's turning the screw, baby. That's extremely much. Yeah, it. you'll love it. It's It's got atmosphere. The Others is another great one mm-hmm. uh, for that. That just like, is this person crazy or is something happening here? Yeah. And that's something that, I don't know, maybe if that's just like a personal worry of mine. Oh, like, yeah. I can't always trust yeah. my brain. Well, and yeah. as you were talking about that, it got me thinking more about its connection, like horror's connection to mystery genre, where yes. you really, oh, yeah. you you really want that parlor scene, even in a horror movie, where everything's explained and you know exactly what's going on, even if the answer is a ghost. Like right. you still kind of want to know. I prefer nobody ever copping to it interesting like if you read the novel and and we discuss this in um adaptation with kendall uh the haunting of hill house Uh you're not sure okay i haven't read that one yet but i have it on audible so i'm gonna start like immediately that's definitely what i listened to it on when i was like driving back and forth throughout the entire novel the characters are not reliable narrators mm, and nope. you're not sure if you can trust them or not and and so i that just really resonates with me can i trust what people are saying am i being conned yeah you know is this something that i want to believe and i want it so bad i'm willing to suspend 
uh, reason, that sort of thing. So, mm. sorry, I've taken us off on a no. tangent. No, 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 I think you've taken no. us to a really interesting place. It's this idea that they were dealing with back in the 1700s and, like, the crisis of the senses and can you trust what you see? And I think... For me, whenever I teach Gothic Lit to my students, I kind of open up and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm a victim of trauma. I have anxiety. And so I'm keenly aware of how one's anxiety can warp your perception of the present. And so Mm. I think it's about trying to figure out like what we can trust and what we can't. And I think that it's interesting that you love the ambiguity because I think that's the other side of remember how we were talking about the overlap of, you know, Gothic and true crime. The true crime like promises a wholeness. It promises a reunion and we're going to find the person who did it. We're going to explain how they did it and how we caught them. And it's very conservative Mm -hmm. and it's very um, like comforting for us. Whereas something like Henry James turn of the screw, it's like, well, we don't quite know what if there was a if there was something that happened, if somebody did it and what actually happened and so i think that kind of speaks to it's a threshold of discomfort for some people yes what is your threshold for discomfort when it comes to these stories like how how comfortable with are you with not knowing and i think that that's that's where knowledge and growth happens is that space where you don't quite know what's going on like you don't need it spoon-fed to you so i think that's why you like it honestly that's where I live. The, the place of not knowing what's going on. That's my the whole only thing life, I know baby. is that I know nothing. Yeah, you have yep. to kind of make yeah. it up as you go along. But to kind of move into the haunting of Hill House, I think that's, yes, Sorry. that's <laughs> no. I it's well, yeah, it deserves it. But I think it has that kind of same flavor of what you were talking about with Henry James. It's a little bit more complicated, especially with the character of Nell. It's like. Do you, is it her? Like, is she gone crazy? Have I gone crazy? Is the supernatural real? Does it really matter if it is or not? Or maybe it's both. Is she she conning people? Is this a plea for attention? Mm -hmm. Exactly, Um, exactly. And then not, you know, this will, I'll be careful to avoid spoilers here, but in the last few paragraphs of the novel, you're actually not even quite a thousand percent sure what, what the, the heck ending is action is. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Something's happening and it's vague enough that you're not entirely sure. You have a strong suspicion, but like, can you point to it in the text or are you filling it in yourself? Exactly. And I think that's what, that's what she did, you know, Shirley Jackson did that was so good is that, that kind of torturous ambiguity that I think, she is writing in this tradition of the female gothic where it's about women's experience in a patriarchal society is one of constant fear and horror and you know confusion and so i think she really brings that out so what did you guys think of the television series (laughs) i'll let you jan answer first. i loved it it was okay i was just googling though because i i haven't read the book but i have seen the Netflix show, and I have seen like the Catherine Zeta Jones, <laughs> Lily Taylor Just version. Forget about that one. Like, is it the actual novel? Which story is it closer to? It is closer to the television show, but also so far away it doesn't matter. Okay. Exactly. So, like, yeah. so I have like no frame of reference for knowing like the what that the, the characters in the novel do. Well, can I ask you a question about the show? Yes. Mm-hmm. The ending of the show, uh-huh. uh huh, and uh, you know, spoiler alert: if people want the to skip ahead for a second, skip forward one minute. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so at the ending of the show, Stephen is the oldest brother, right? Yeah. yeah. So he goes up. Uh, his father and his mother and Nell are in the red room. Yeah. And the door closes and he's allowed to leave Hill House. Yeah. Is that a happy ending or a sad ending? Hmm. Which version well, of the mother need... are we talking to there? Yeah. I need to rewatch it, though, because it... it... I watched it right when it came out, so it's been a while. Sure. And I don't fully, like, even as I was watching it, I was like, I'm not even 100% sure what is going on here. And then I've sub- subsequently read reviews that, like, maybe it was not what you think it is. All right, I'm going to pause you for a second. Dr. Okay. Janelle Laredo, let me ask you the same question. <laughs> yeah. When that ends, is it a happy ending or a sad ending? I will say that... <sighs> Because I, uh, not to toot my own heart, but I did uh, write a book chapter about this because um, I Hello. had these questions. Yeah. Hopefully they'll come out with McFarland soon in an anthology about the series. But I think that it's trying to be a happy ending because okay. what's happened at the end is that I think the director, I forget what his name is, though. Oh, darn. I should have looked that up. Um, it's the husband of the psycho of the psychotherapist sister. Uh, what's oh yeah, her name? yeah. Let's see, haunting. Of- oh. She was great in Hush, by the way. I freaking loved her in Hush. She's also so beautiful. It's offensive. Yeah, yeah. she's gorgeous. She's so gorgeous. She reminds me of Angelina Jolie and Gia. Like, ooh, no, yes. Mike. Okay, so I have a type. Uh, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> Mike Flanagan, that's right. Yeah, he's the director. And he talked about how at the end uh, he felt that because they have that moment all together in the uh, when they're celebrating the one brother's sobriety. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how they wanted to put the rectangular window in that scene. So that way later on when people looked at it, they'd be like, oh, no, they're still in the red room. But he thought that Mm. that would take away from the father's sacrifice. Yes. Oh, okay. And so I think he's very, you know, as a man, I think he's very focused on, you know, the father needing to fix everything. And I think in a way he tries to fix the book. He tries to give it a happy ending. He tries to tack on this message of unity because instead at the end, Mm. it's like whatever walked there walked alone. He says whatever walked there walked together. And I think that that is kind of a a betrayal of the original Mm. uh, novel because I think the novel wants to leave you with that that disunion, that ambiguity and that feeling of discord rather than of ghostly uh, communion or unity. So See, you will be pleased then. Now, I had read the novel, I believe, I can't remember anymore. I think I read the novel before I watched the show. Um, but you'll be pleased to hear that I believe it's not a happy ending. And I think the acting choices of the woman who plays the mother and the demon mother. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is kind of licking her lips that she's had this um, this this feeding from the sacrifice mm. of the father. And I Amazing. think as the door she's... closes and she takes the spirit of Nell and Hugh Crane into the red room... She seems to be like, oh, I'm coming for you next, Stephen. Oh, and like, it's not done. Okay. <laughs> well, so, the, I mean, there is going to be a season two. There is going to be a season two, but I think it's not about Hill House anymore. Gotcha, right? Yeah, it's, it's about look. a totally different, um, what is it? Something Manor, I forget. Bly Manor. Okay. Bly Manor, right. Which might be 
Turn of the screw? They're doing it, yeah. They're doing a turn of the screw. And so my only, ugh, I mean, I hope he leaves more of the ambiguity than uh, he so did too. with Hill House because I, for me, my God, I was just yeah, if like, he didn't like the end of Hill House, then he's probably going to hate the end of right. Turn of the Exactly. <laughs> it's that tension. But yeah, I think that it's, but I think it's also. Because the reason I enjoyed the Netflix series so much is because you it's in that bingeable format. And for me, that really kind of in many ways can recreate an experience of trauma on a small scale Mm -hmm. because you you experience the out of timeness where it's like you binge it and you're just Mm -hmm. like, what day is it? You know, and that and that kind of resonates with me and with with the idea of trauma as an event out of time where you lose time Mm. and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, what day is it? You know, what's going on? It also has one of the best musical scores. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's so good. Definitely. I think that's very fair. Yeah, I really I really love that novel. I loved that show. I also love the guy who plays Stephen. I think he's so beautiful. I mean, he's in Dario Game of Thrones. He's yeah. gorge. Yeah. He's yeah. so gorge. He's uh, pretty to look yeah, at. Yeah, there's a lot of really beautiful people in that show. Uh, yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a really interesting question about whether or not a finished thing is satisfying or unsatisfying. Yeah. Mm. Oof. I'm trying to think of other shows where you or movies where you don't quite get. Well, I think haunting. Uh, um, no, what is. Brian Murphy. Oh, American Horror Story? American Horror Story. You don't get clothes on everything. You don't get... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually am kind of really behind on American Horror Story. I kind of oh, got I up to only watched Samesies. I'm still on Asylum. Yeah, okay. See, Asylum was a letdown for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe because there was... Well, I'll, I'll tell you. It's because there were too many things going on. We had mm-hmm. demons. We had Santa Claus. We had... Aliens. There was syphilitic Anne Frank. It was a lot. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember season two? Did I didn't you, watch you it. Never watched it. No. Skip it. You're like <laughs> oh, skip it. It was. It was too opinions. much. Uh, but season three is dope. Season one's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love that show. Uh, even though I'm behind. We are yeah. so. Speaking of behind, we are totally off track. What were I mean, we talking about we're, before? We're I took us on a word journey. You were talking about. Um, stories that have unsatisfying endings and I think that that points to the the ghost story as like what is the purpose of a ghost story like it's to haunt us you know so I think you were right on just to make you uncomfortable forever exactly I think that's the best kind and so I'll pose you a question um from Crimson Peak so what makes a ghost story rather than a story with a ghost in it is it Tom Hiddleston's butt I'm still I'm still haunted (laughs) (laughs) I'm uncomfortable Uh, all right what makes something a ghost story versus having a ghost in it that's an interesting question um huh I got nothing I don't know I feel like I've had this exact thought pattern before where I was like I watched something and I was like well that wasn't that was just the ghost was incidental or something right so like is the ghost the point okay so Crimson Peak yeah you brought up Crimson Peak I'll spoil it Um, I haven't seen it you what no we saw it together no I wasn't here when you saw it Jen we saw it together she was a ghost I, you know what? I have long suspected Dr. Gerardo. <laughs> no, um, so Crimson Peak, there are no ghosts until like the last two minutes of the movie. What? Well, hang on, that's not quite true. The mother. 
But for the most part, the movie isn't about... It's Because it's not about the whole sensation of the ghost. Like, The Woman in Black is a ghost story. It's a story mm-hmm. about, you know, somebody being haunted and the experiences of this haunting. Whereas Crimson Peak, you know, the, the ghost of her mother tries to warn her to stay away from Crimson Peak. She doesn't quite believe in ghosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the end, Tom Hiddleston's ghost protects her from his insane sister. <laughs> so, sorry, Jen. Oh, alert. so many spoilers. I'm like, what? Fine. Spoilers aren't real. It's fine. Uh, They're like ghosts. <laughs> Not. <laughs> anyway, um, so so for me, or or even uh, going back to Ebenezer Scrooge and and Nightmare Before Christmas. What about what is it? Not Nightmare. Yeah, the, the night. The Christmas uh, the Carol. Christmas Carol. Good job. Sorry. Um, a Christmas Carol really isn't about Ebenezer Scrooge having these ominous feelings of haunting. Hmm. He's he's going on this moralistic journey yeah. and these guys, these ghosts are kind of like the precipice of that. Um, so I would say that's less of a ghost story than say the woman in black where Daniel Radcliffe or whoever the main character was in the novel, which I did read are feeling like, I don't know what's going on. Am I being affected by ghosts is a haunting mm-hmm. Like that's a ghost story to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just the presence of a ghost that makes a ghost story. It's how it affects the main character. And, like, there's this real, like, crisis uh, right. at the crux of it. Yeah, yeah. Is is this something that can physically affect me or not? Am I going insane? And, and kind of being on that mental journey with your protagonist or hero. But, yeah, there, there are other stories where the ghost, you know, maybe moves the plot along. Hamlet. Well, no, we kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hamlet's question is about... He gives some about, crucial information, I think. Yeah, which moves the plot, for yeah. sure. Um, but Hamlet's question is whether or not, you know, life is worth living or if he's insane, yeah. not am I being haunted. Right. Yeah. That's So that's a story with a ghost in it. And exactly. he arguably would have had those feelings without seeing his father's ghost. It's for just sure. It's actually mm-hmm. his ghost that causes him to come back from that almost because he has to solve the mystery of right. like, what happened. Exactly. Okay. Mm. So does that, is that largely lining up with what you think as well? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think uh, it has to be more, it has to be, the ghost has to be more than just a sheet with rattling chains. What is, what are they doing? What do they represent? Because I mean, I think we've seen from the beginning of this that ghosts can represent a wide array of things. They can represent things like guilt, unfinished business, stuff like that. But it's like, it's really about, and I think that's why ghost stories can in a lot of ways be more enjoyable than, you know, uh, gory horror movies because that's just physical, you know, damage right. that can be done, like a slasher movie. But with a ghost story, it's like it has the potential to stay with you and haunt you um, from yes. beyond. Which is exactly why I prefer ghost stories to Exactly, because we all have regrets. We all have anxieties. Like, I think a lot of people um, who have those things are haunted. And so mm-hmm. to understand that sensation, I think that's what ghost stories really bring to the table it's that kind of lasting thing that it's still at the back of your head and it's like you start to think about the things that are haunting you Mm -hmm. yeah i like that 
I it's like really that cool. A lot. It's really cool. Um, also, I've got here the elements of a ghost story. So this guy, Mr. James, he was a prodigious writer of ghost stories, and so according to him, a ghost story should include the following elements: a characterful setting in an English village, seaside town mm-hmm. or country estate in an ancient yep. town in France, Denmark, or Sweden, or a venerable <laughs> abbey or university. <laughs> and then you have to have as your protagonist a nondescript and rather naive gentleman scholar, uh, oh, often right. often of a reserved nature. And then finally, yeah. you have to have the discovery of an old book or other antiquarian object that somehow unlocks, calls down the wrath of, or at least attracts the unwelcome attention of a supernatural menace from beyond the grave. So that's interesting because my... My classic ghost story that I like is my go-to in my head, which is the film The Others mm. uh, with Nicole Kidman. Yep. Therefore, doesn't fit what yeah. he's saying. Now, it does it takes place on an estate? That's true. Yep. yep. Uh, but it's certainly the the main character is Nicole Kidman, who is who's not a reserved she's gentleman. Not at a all. naive gentleman scholar. Yeah. Right. No, she's she's actually rather anti. Well, she's she's for biblical scholarship, but that's kind of about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Uh, kind of a neurotic housewife, right? And and she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't come across something like there's no sort of antique item that prompts the haunting. No, no. Um, I and I think that's because I think the others is hitting on something different. I think uh, M. R. James, you know, as a writer of ghost stories, he's a man, and so like his stories are going to be very centered on a male protagonist. I think the others is more. If I were to put it in a category, I would put it more in the category of the female gothic because it's it's a lot about like the tensions associated with being a mother and the head of the household and having that authority questioned and having your you know uh, emotions and rationality questioned as well and so i think can that we do it's... a yes sorry go ahead i just want to do a whole ass episode about the female gothic yeah that's yes, gonna be our next ma'am one. that sounds great that is amazing okay it's so, so you just want to put so together some slides on that <laughs> We'll have I actually again. hold hold on to your hats. I've got. I'm going to send it to you right now because I actually have a slideshow on this. No way. I've never I teach loved this. You more. I teach this. <sighs> you this have so the coolest exciting. job. I know. It's true. This is what I. You know. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So where is it? I'm super excited that we're having this conversation. Like I'm just Heck delighted yeah. right now. I'm glad. Yeah, because it's like this is the stuff. It's it's interesting because it's hard to bust this out at parties. What? You need to come to what? our parties. I need obviously. to come to your party. Well, it's like, I'm going to give you a lecture on the blah, blah, blah. Um, let's see. Where so we this? actually, um, I'm planning one of those. Yes. Uh, I wonder if you could Skype in for it. That would be awesome. We So uh, there's this trend right now mm-hmm. of drink, talk, learn parties. Yes, yes, yes. <gasps> where That's cool. literally get together and do mini lectures. I did one with my friend Andrea at her house, um, and I did a talk on Memento Mori. It's uh, history yes! and uses. Oh, my God. I and I won. So I won the competition. So That's that amazing. was kind of fun. That's amazing. I got a little uh, squeezer grabby thing. It was great. <laughs> squeezer, squeezer you grabby take that one again? thing. 
So, you know, like... For everyone who's not watching you. Right. Well, uh... Is it a laser pointer? No, it's not. It's a squeezer grabby thing. It grabs things. Oh, like a T-Rex kind of like... Yeah, well, no, it's not shaped like a T-Rex. Yeah, it's like an arm extender where you can grab things off a tall shelf. That's what I was just imagining. There's like a comic where there's a T-Rex who's like, I can't reach something. And then someone gives him a pair of those. And he's like, I'm unstoppable. That comic definitely exists. I've seen that. I have seen it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's it's that thing. Uh, so Andrea's whole uh, prize package was about stuff that she got at the dollar store. That's amazing. Oh, that <laughs> so is it was so like, great. Right? It was that for first prize. Second prize was a pair of those sunglasses that have like horizontal pieces of sunglass in the way, like a visor. That is so <laughs> and great. And then... The third prize, I think, was off-brand gumdrops. Gross. Oh my yeah. god! I love doing that. Yeah, like me and my husband are having a we're having a tres reyes magos party, which is on the sixth of. It's traditionally celebrated on the sixth. It, it marks the day when the three wise men actually gave their gifts to Jesus. Oh, um, yeah, but yeah. I love it because it's an excuse to get together and party. And so we're going to play Loteria, which is like basically a bingo. And then we're going to bring gifts that we don't want and we're going to play bingo for them. That's exactly how that should go. That's glorious and the perfect way to end the Christmas season. Exactly, exactly. Uh, But yeah, so I just sent you that presentation on the female gothic so you guys can take a gander. I can't wait. But I'm dead serious. We should do that as an episode going yeah. forward. That'd be uh, awesome. Maybe sometime in the spring. But yeah, so to kind of end it, I love, absolutely love, love, love. For me, the what a ghost represents is, uh, let's see, uh, from Guillermo del Toro's um, <gasps> Espinazo del Diablo, The Devil's Backbone. I, I just him. absolutely love it. And so I'll just kind of quote it here. I love Guillermo because he is bringing that kind of Spanish, uh, you know, uh, aesthetic to what he's doing. And the whole idea yes. of a ghost is something trapped in amber. I think he does that visually with his ghosts a lot because you'll see in the devil's backbone, it's kind of like the ghost of the boy has a head injury and then it's like mm-hmm. you could see the blood kind of seeping up and through and it looks like he's encased in liquid oh yeah yeah we'll yeah. post a link to that, that because yes. it's in spanish yeah so. and he does that in uh crimson peak as well with the ghosts where it kind of looks like they have floating liquid around them but yes. man it, it it in that way ghosts remind me so much of trauma and how it's mm-hmm. this event or memory that kind of is encapsulated and captured in a moment and that's what continues to haunt us so yeah i actually i i think that's the perfect anecdote for how or not anecdote the perfect metaphor? summary metaphor <laughs> for how we look at a lot of the hauntings that we come across from mm. people's stories one of my favorite listeners stories uh, somebody wrote in, and, and forgive me to this person, I don't remember your name, but there had been a car crash in front of their house, mm. and they went down to the basement moments later, and there was a little girl there who had died in the car crash, but she was now in this house asking where her mother was. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that was something that she and her brother had experienced, this this listener. Um, and it's I think it's my favorite listener story, but that moment of incredible trauma... And our brains or the universe or God or whoever trying to help us balance that out mm. and like get prepared for that next life or, or not and being stuck in a place forever 
uh, just repeating that, that moment of incredible trauma. They say that King Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, took me a minute, I got there. Wow. I'm... Uh, Okay. <laughs> she she walks the path to her execution site. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the ways that she, I mean, talk about incredible trauma to be yeah. moments before you're put to death by the man you kind of bet all the cards on. So, yeah. It's really <sighs> sad. No, I think, oh, here, I got it in English. Oh, perfect. Do, do, do. So he says, what is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again. A moment of pain, perhaps. Something dead which which still seems to be alive. An emotion suspended in time, like a blurred photograph, like an insect trapped in amber. A ghost. That's what I am. Hmm. That is the perfect note to end on. Yeah. It's perfect. I am so glad. It's, awesome. It is. I, I'm so glad we did this. Um, everybody, that was, uh, we're, we're sitting again with Dr. Jeanette Laredo, who is, uh, she's a teacher, she's a coordinator of academic support services at the Tarrant County College's Trinity River Campus. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter. Uh, at Monster Scholar, where she does have a newsletter. And soon we will be excited to hear about the launching of her podcast. Which I assume will be better than ours because this is Stop. amazing. <laughs> That's really great. So everyone go listen to it and That's we'll right. let y'all know when it's up. We can just share awesome. audiences. It'll yeah. be great. <laughs> That'd be awesome. There's a lot of overlap. so There's, there's... room for everyone. Um, all right. Well, I think with that, we should say goodbye, and yeah. uh, we'll start editing this and get it get it going. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we let you go? But just thank you so much for listening. And uh, stories like this are so important, and kind of like studying the weird and creepy is what I love to do. So if you ever want to talk about this kind of stuff, hit me up on Twitter. I'm always up for talking about the strange and unusual. I've never felt closer to you, Amazing. and I love you Stop. so much. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, oh. so thank you so much to Dr. Jeanette. Dr. Jeanette Laredo. Uh, that was seriously the most amazing episode. Yeah. I, I just there's so many things that I just thought I knew about the genre, about history, about everything that I just oh, my mind's so blown, and I love it, and I love her, and we're gonna be best friends. Yep. Let's all get matching tattoos. Yeah. And go for a spa weekend. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Uh, so we have a few, <laughs> a few new patrons to thank. Uh, thank you to Samar. Thank you to Tracy Zielakowski, and thank you to Catherine Peacock. Yes, thank you all. Um, you guys are amazing. Thank yeah, you. We made a super dumb but really fun Christmas episode. Video yeah. Guys. Uh, uh, so we hope you enjoyed that. Yeah. So uh, we'll have a January video soon enough. Yeah. Because that's something we have the to wheel talk keeps about. Turning. We yeah. got to figure it out. <laughs> fucking time space continuum. <laughs> It'll get you every time. Uh, all right. Well, with that. Um, you, you can find us on Patreon you can find us on Twitter you can find us on Instagram you, you can find us, us on Facebook with the nicest everywhere. people in the internet yeah. uh, for the discussion group we definitely recommend you join that and just come be nice with us Yeah. and uh, other than that Jeff you want to take us away? well yes see you in a fortnight and <laughs> until then stay spooky motherfuckers damn right <laughs> <laughs>